0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another bounty
1: episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with me as Z. As usual, the Spot the Vault challenge will be covered in tomorrow's binary episode. And if you want to check that out, you can uh, go over to our Discord and, and check out the Spot the Vault channel. And with that said, we can jump into our topics. So, up first, we have a Medium post uh, by and Bose, which is a write up of some Vaults found in an undisclosed form, which had a Teams feature. Um, so, jumping straight into it, in this form, you could create a team. And a user could request to join a team with any non admin role, and then an admin uh, and only an admin can approve the request to join. So, you know, fairly standard setup. Uh, But there were a few bugs in that process when it came to the request level. So, the first issue was the team and the roles were sent with object IDs to the team join post endpoint. And there was sort of an IDOR issue where. Um, you could basically just capture the role ID for the admin role and then replace the object ID for the role in the request for admin and it would go through. Um, So it was only really the front end that was preventing you from requesting joining as an admin. Uh, But if you tamper with the request level, um, you could get that through. So that would allow you to send a request to join a team as admin, which normally shouldn't be possible, um, though that is a fairly low impact issue because obviously, you know, if you're an admin and you see someone requesting to join as an admin, you're probably not going to accept that invitation. Um, that's kind of where the more pivotal second issue
2: comes into play. Um, no, if somebody sent that to me, it sounds like a fun thing to do.
1: <laughs> just to <laughs> see what happens. Yeah.
2: Especially, I thought I, I was wrong about this post actually, but um, I initially thought it was on like some sort of CTF platform. I think just because they mentioned working as a CTF designing consultant, and then it's a team issue. I thought it was something related to that. So I'm like, Oh yeah, somebody trying to join my CTF team as an admin. Sounds like they might be a good member. I jumped but to the uh,
1: same thing, actually. I made the same mistake and then I had to reread it, and it's like, oh wait, no, this isn't a CTF platform. Yeah. It's
2: clear target is a form. So they do make a clear we just yeah. misread.
1: Yeah. I mean it's easy because we always say that we like to see those like issues that target the CTF platform. So I think it's it's easy to jump to that conclusion with the way it was written. So uh but yeah, the the more Pivotal issue was the second issue, um, and that allowed you to approve your own join requests on behalf of the admin. Um, And this was because the same sort of issue existed on the other side for admins. Um, So in this case, it was the team and team member object IDs. um, And you can just swap these IDs in and accept any team member into any team, essentially, uh, as I understand it, uh, if there's a a join request that was already submitted. So yeah, some real meme bugs. uh, And the impact is somewhat low is ultimately, it is like getting admin on someone's team on a form, but it's still kind of funny issues and they chain together nicely. Um, And it's just another example of relying on the front end too much and not really enforcing validation on the request level. So, yeah, thought we'd start off with some pretty mean bugs.
2: Yeah, I would be surprised if there weren't other bugs similar nature in this platform, given like just the blatant lack of any authorization check on the is approval, like, doing that approved thing. It's genuinely surprising, but also, I just notice how they call these, like, underscore underscore type pointer class name and then the object ID. Maybe it's nothing, but, like, those names make me think there might be something with, like, serialization going on here too, like a Maybe not necessarily a deserialization, but could you maybe point, uh, you know, say it's pointer to whatever class, but actually point the object ID somewhere else, that sort of attack
0: there. That API, that interface just seems kind of weird to me. Um, It's probably nothing. But I don't know. The whole thing's vicious. For sure.
1: All right. So, uh, continuing on the request level, uh, we have a post uh, called Fetch Diversion, and it talks about client side path traversal type issues with some real world examples in undisclosed targets. So, uh, Z, you mentioned that we'd uh, brought up client side path traversal before uh, on a previous episode, which I'd kind of forgotten about. So, I'll let you get into this one.
2: Yeah, we actually covered it. Um, I think it was episode 176 this uh, practical client side uh, path traversals trying to get the link to show up here there we go uh they mostly they talk about like a css case but the gist of the bug um or this newer post basically they're calling it fetched a version so giving it a different name but um same sort of bug Our idea is when you have some sort of parameter say coming out of the url fragment maybe it's even stored in some cases um i think that css one had a stored value getting used but you have some value that's user controlled um, actually, that CSS one I don't think would be my bad on that because that would then be a self attack. Anyway, uh, you have some parameter coming from somewhere the user controls, um, and that gets used in crafting another URL. So in this case, they've got like the ID example here, and that's just being used to, or actually, that's not being used, that highlight, um, that's being used as like part of the API, um paste it right into the URL, and then they do something like that, which is reasonably common to see, especially with the REST-style APIs. Instead of using parameters to send, like, identifiers, they will just toss it right into um, the URL itself. And so you have the chance for doing some sort of path traversal attack there, which I thought was a interesting idea when we talked about it on the episode 176. Um, in this case, they're looking at a few more... Relatively practical cases are likely cases where you can actually abuse this and just talk a little bit. They have three examples of actually abusing this sort of issue um but yeah, the core idea is very similar to uh just your standard path traversal where you inject you know the dot dot slash it's just you're doing this on the client side now you're doing this in a URL so that instead of resolving this API target um they of going to v two users whatever slash profile. Um, it'll go to whatever endpoint you actually want to redirect the request to. So you can have these requests hit other endpoints. Um, they have a few examples or a few exploit strategies for this. One being getting a DOM access with an uploaded file. The idea being there, you have some sort of file upload system. In uh, their second case study, they use a, uh, uh image upload. You would upload your image. It would uh, be... Sent back to you as like application Get exactly what the header was application binary um would be sent back there as just that but you could fetch that um and being an image you could just upload basically whatever content you want there were some client-side constraints there but most of us know those don't matter the only real security is what's actually happening on the server uh But effectively, you have a file upload, so if you can redirect any post, or not any post requests, any API requests, any fetch, to your uploaded file, now you control the response to all of that. Can you do anything with that? Perhaps, perhaps not. They did have one kind of cool trick they use here. It's nothing too crazy. I know other people have done very uh, similar things, but still, the way they went and found um, a source for their uh, DOM XSS. Uh, was by using a basically a find and replace inside of burp to replace every json value with uh, xss payload i don't know you i think i've done something similar with like a proxy um i would just write my own little proxy that would replace content by doing that in burp that one's much easier just a decent tip for getting kind of that widespread test i mean in this case you're Kind of looking for server responses that can't be trusted. So it's a little bit of an interesting case. But um but yeah, they went and found I'm actually trying to find where they actually talk about having done that here. Ah, right down here. Making sure I'm referencing the right post. Um but that's the first idea. Just using a file you can upload as your target to redirect to. Um Which basically just gives you control over the server's response to any, well, to any API request that you can redirect with this sort of client-side path traversal. Um, The other thing that they talk about being able to do here is making authenticate requests. And I think this is one of the more interesting use cases because an application, when it's making these fetch requests to its own API, it's probably going to be including things like the authorization header. Um anti c tokens or even setting like application json the header or content type header um setting that that's gonna let you potentially redirect to
0: other endpoints that you could then actually abuse for something. Um, you don't get much control over like if it's
2: posting or something, you don't get much control over the actual body or content of the data, but you are able to redirect to. Something, if you can do something like uh, provide all the parameters in the URL, doing that sort of switch and take advantage of it. Um, but It's still something to kind of be aware of, and I feel like that's going to be a good place to kind of look for this, or look for abusing it. Um, and lastly, talk talked about using an open redirect. You have some sort of open redirect on the same domain. And that is the thing, because you're only uh, modifying the path that it's going to, not the actual domain, you are still limited to like targets on the API or whatever it's actually fetching. Uh, but using that, you get a redirect to happen. If redirect happens on the server side, it's going to redirect, and it's going to include all those headers they added in that redirect, so you would be able to expose that potentially to your own domain and get acts like, the authorization header or whatever it means. Probably don't care if they set the content type, but um, if they set authorization, especially for some custom header with an auth token, that's something you'd be interested in leaking. So again, just good use. Uh, They then kind of go into three cases of actually doing this. One was, um, you know, if you're watching, this will be pretty obvious, language. uh, And that's where it loads this uh, locale's JSON file that gets put into the page and securely uh they were able to use uh I think there was an image upload. What was there in this? Or no, this application just had documents of all kinds. So they could just upload a random document, redirect to their random document, um, and basically use that for the uh use that for XSS. Um, They had another one, API call. I'll I'll leave it to you guys to actually dive through all of them, but it's basically taking those exploit cases from before, which I think are the main takeaways here, and just showing a few real cases. Of course, they don't actually give information about what websites or applications these were found on. So I think most of the value is just in those exploit strategies, especially if you took interest in the uh, whole client side, path traversal attack when we talked about it on episode 176 or maybe you were interested in it before i think i mentioned that was that was fairly new to me i mean kind of one of those things that you're roughly aware like maybe there's something to do there but not something i'd ever dug into so seeing seeing some more work on the same research is kind of nice
1: yeah it's a uh it's a neat technique and how it works and uh there's a lot of different directions you can go with it uh, I actually like the third case study that they got into here where they, like on this particular target, they bypass C-Surf protection um, by diverting a post request, basically just because, you know, the the request is going to contain the head, uh, the anti-C-Surf header. Uh, they had like a custom anti-C-Surf header in, in, in there, but uh, this vulnerable page would take an ID query parameter in the form of a UUID, um, and it was vulnerable to the path traversal and you could use that to send requests to the more privileged endpoints uh which would include the the c token so it's it's another neat way that you could take advantage of this but like you said there's a lot of uh like details and specifics on uh the exploits that were found like real world scenarios of it um so yeah it's a cool post it goes into uh, a good number of different attacks that you can try to pull off with it um and yeah i, I think client-side path traversal is just kind of neat in, in in its nature uh we do have another post that talks about it as well um by Arisek, Uh and it's another practical example of a client-side uh, path traversal which i'll let you get into see
2: yeah and this one i don't think we need to spend a ton of time talking about largely because it is similar to one of the flows that we did just talk about in this case, they have a application, some sort of financial application. Again, they're not telling us where it was found. Fortunately, um, as you'd expect, no financial app. You can manage accounts, payments, cards. You have different user profiles. Some particular kind of matters here are there admins who can invite other employees or you know contractors, whatever, onto the platform to create an account. And they do that. They kind of have this normalish looking invite thing. And they have an invite code. So when that invite code gets parsed, it ends up making this post to check the invite code uh, to their API or backend, whatever, uh, taking that invite code, just tossing it around the URL so you can do a traversal there. Um, and so you do that traversal, you get it hitting some other endpoint. Then it's just a question of, well, what endpoints could they get to using this post? Um, and again, actually, I will mention this did have the uh their uh anti c-surf token so it's including that they're able to hit any any endpoint that they want they just need one that would actually take a post with an empty body as this request um uh, apparently would send or at least not with the parameters that they wanted um does look like it's normally sending it with the
0: email and then they're looking for endpoints that don't take it um Oh, yeah. Looking for a request to take empty or Jason by with single email. My bad. Uh, So, yeah, they're looking
2: for that sort of endpoint. They came across just canceling a card, which doesn't seem super impactful. Actually, I'd even question how practical this as an attack is simply because uh, the endpoint that they redirect to is this cards. You've got the uh, UID and then slash cancel. So they're able to cancel it, but they need to know this ID. And I don't believe that ID is going to be very easy to come across. Um maybe something with brute forcing it. Uh that would really depend a bit more on the application, how they're actually generating those values. But does it, like just looking at it, assuming it's random. I mean, I'm assuming this particular value they've kind of messed with a little bit to hide the true values. Uh But assuming it's random would be pretty hard to predict and they don't talk about being able to disclose that in any way. You would need to know an admin's card to actually cancel it or someone's card to cancel it. Um, They do also make mention of finding like a page for a super admin um, and a similar kind of endpoint they could abuse there. But I mean, in terms of the attack, it's very similar to what we just saw with the C-Serve bypass just. An actual case for. Which is the thing, with this sort of attack, it does open up uh sea surf even when you have, you know, same-sight none or um these sort or sorry, strict. Uh even when you have some sort of extra protection there, these sort of attacks kind of open it back up with limit with obvious limitations. So again, it's interesting, it's nice to see that uh basically you know, two posts coming out very quickly. It feels like a newer sort of area for research. I guess other people also found, uh, yeah, actually, he does call out the post, uh, that we were talking about in episode 176, calls that out as being kind of their inspiration, or I guess inspiration for writing about it, not necessarily for looking at it, but, but yeah, I mean, just another case of it. Interesting to see. I see the,
0: you know, a bit more research being put out there about it to make it more accessible.
1: Yeah. All right, so we'll get into our next topic here, which is uh, a Project Zero post on uh, DER entitlements. So this is talking about iOS, um, and it's been a little while since we've talked about iOS entitlements. So for those who are unaware of what they are, they're basically Apple's fine-grained permission system uh, where an app can have one or more entitlements to what rights or capabilities they have. Uh, so third party apps can only have certain like a limited subset of entitlements. Um, and, you know, those have to be signed off by Apple before it makes its way to the app store. So it's how Apple manages the capabilities of what apps can and can't do. Um, so, yeah, in iOS 15, they updated the entitlements, though, and they changed the format from a text based XML format to DER, or distinguished encoding rules, uh, which is specified in the X690 standard and as a binary format. So of course a library had to be added to, to deal with the, the DER entitlements. Uh, and this lib is used in both uh, user land and kernel, so it's a fairly interesting target in that respect. Um, but it's also fairly small and it's just a single library unlike the four or five that were used for XML. Um, so overall it is like a more secure move, um, moving away from you know the text-based XML parsing where it was kind of a nightmare and there were bugs in the past because of uh, parser differentials with how many libraries were doing it. Um, And this is moving to, like, a more uh, sensible format uh, in in a lot of ways. So, yeah, it's fairly small, and and it is just in one lib, but it does implement traversing uh, in a few different places for DER entitlements. Um,
2: And this is where the bug starts coming into play. Which Um, I thought was interesting, actually, is the fact that they're kind of centralizing around just having the one parser, or at least it seems like they're going for that, and then they still kind of screw that up by having multiple parsers. Uh, it's interesting, yeah. Like, you think I think it would
1: have been more centralized.
2: Yeah, like, I could imagine the case where, you know, multiple developers working at the same time, oh, we don't have this functionality, yet; therefore need to implement it themselves, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely stands out, and when you have it's just ripe for having some sort of desync attack as we're going to see here. So I'll let you keep going.
1: Yeah. Um, so I will preface this by saying uh, some of you might've noticed we started a little bit later today, and this is kind of where we were having a discussion before we went live uh, because it's a little bit like complex, how the root bug works um, because there's multiple lengths in play. So I brought up the image for those who can see Um So basically, inside of these uh, sequences, you can have like a a sequence length, and then you could also have these, like the length of the values inside of it, or the content length. Um, And it seems like there's a bit of a disagreement when it comes to the sequence length and how to treat it uh, when you have a smaller sequence length, uh, but a larger content length. So... Yeah, like I was saying, it's not really centralized. The way that DER entitlements are traversed is done in a few different places. Um, so there's recursively validate entitlements, which is used for entitlement validation, obviously. Uh, der VM iterate for converting entitlements into a dictionary um, and checking it up as a subset. And DER VM execute no copy, which is used for querying the entitlements. So. As you can probably guess where this is going, these traverses are similar, but they're not exactly the same in how they're implemented, uh, especially when it comes to handling that entitlement sequence length. So while DRVM iterate would behave correctly uh, and upon parsing a key value sequence would continue processing um, after the sequence end if the content length was larger than the smaller sequence length, um, the other functions would ignore the sequence length though and would just kind of continue parsing after the end of the value. Instead of going on to the next sequence. Um, So,
2: effectively, Um, that allowed you to smuggle entitlements. Yep, go ahead. Are you actually so recursively validate entitlements? Does that actually do it correctly? I don't think he technically calls it
0: out either way if it's correct or not. The two that Um, seem really in play are just the VM one. Sorry. Uh, Since he mentioned the other two do it uh, incorrectly, I'm just, I'm not entirely
2: sure about that.
1: Okay, yeah. So I read it as that was implied, um, by saying that Der- Der VM did it correctly, but not calling out the other, it the two other was ones. Not
2: um, Fair, yeah. I mean, actually, I could yeah, get sorry. that reading, but I don't see it as explicit. So I didn't. Uh, I mean, I don't think it matters either way. Like we don't really talk about, or. Oh, I guess you are pointing out that I am just wrong. They both completely. Yeah, um, as
1: you were talking, I, I just read into it and saw. Yet yeah, they do explicitly call out that. They do like both of them functioning correctly. So, okay, yeah.
0: My
1: bad. Yeah, all good. Um, so, yeah, this effectively allowed you to smuggle entitlements by embedding them as children of other entitlements because they'd be visible to uh, the execute no copy for doing the querying, but it would be hidden from the functions uh, that use DM. Uh, or VM iterate like the the context is subset. Uh, to take advantage of this bug, they had to write some tooling that would craft the entitlements and embed them into the signature blob. Um, and they also had to find an entitlement that was useful to smuggle in. Um, they were pretty limited in that respect um, because a lot of the user space daemons that would have the more interesting entitlements were still using the old system um, that was XML based. So those kinds of entitlements weren't really open for them to use. Uh, just kind of that weird place where, you know, not everything's transitioned over to using the, the DER entitlements yet. So that left them with the entitlement checks done by the kernel, uh, of which they list some here. Uh, a majority of what they detail are done by Apple Mobile File Integrity to check if processes have entitlements. Um, and the one that was reported was invoking the KX request API for kernel extensions, which normally you shouldn't have access to even as root. So it's a pretty privileged functionality uh, being able to gain access and give yourself the entitlement for that. Um, and yeah, so interesting bug, and it could have some, some serious ramifications. and. Again, where it is some, like one of those higher level bugs, and you're not dealing with something like memory corruption, uh, it's pretty powerful because it's reliable uh, and
2: pretty repeatable. So, yeah, yeah, this um, isn't something that's going uh, uh, to crash on you. Uh, it works, or it's very stable. I don't want to talk just kind of as a takeaway in general
0: from this bug. It's uh, one is just the fact that they have the two effectively interpreters uh
2: the two things implementing different traversal algorithms or three i guess technically um fact that you have multiple things doing the same thing creates that case for there to be a desync um and in this case i just want to point out a little bit that there's it's a little bit confusing because of the different length values in play um the way i believe this one worked is just because you have kind of Every element in dir has a TLV, type, length, and value. The length is supposed to be the full length of just, here's how long this value is. So every time you're processing one dir item, even if it has sub-elements or whatever, like if you want to skip it, you just go, you know, plus length bytes and jump ahead to the next thing. Um, like it's really simple to kind of jump ahead in that sense. Or you can go in and actually process that whole value. And then when processing that value, you have another value that seems to sort of count. It's the sequence length value. Um, so they create basically desync in terms of the value that they create for it. Here's how many bytes this thing takes up, And then when you actually process the length of uh, the length given there for the sequence, that ends up being shorter, creating this gap where you can smuggle in data because one keeps reading from where it stopped processing the sub entities, The other one actually skips ahead to the end of the container entity when it's done
0: processing it. Um, that is kind of a common case that you do see in parsers, um, and it's a bit of a weird
2: case to have the multiple links, but when you have kind of that desync between a container size and internal size, you can sometimes smuggle in content here. So I kind of want to call that out as just one of those cases to keep an eye out for. Um, yeah, I mean, this is very kind of internal to iOS, but you could see that sort of processing happen elsewhere. Just when you have multiple lengths, what can you do if they're not exactly what the application's expecting? You know, it's something just to uh, play around with, test, and see what happens.
1: Yeah, it can be a difficult scenario to handle properly as a developer, so. Um, Yeah, Yeah, like, it's
2: really easy to think that if if this weren't a malicious set of entitlements, in theory, your sequence should end, because, I mean, during coding, part of that is also, like, keeping things serialized, not having some excess padding, so it makes sense that a developer would think, oh, I can just carry on once I'm done parsing, and not actually validate that it's at the proper end. Um, I mean, it's an easy mistake to make when you're trying to implement this, just not really thinking about all of the consequences of that.
0: Yeah.
1: I I thought I'd get into the um, way this bug was patched because it's kind of funny but this bug was patched accidentally uh, through a refactor which was discovered when apple asked uh, p0 to try to reproduce the bug in macOS os ventura uh, and found that the der parsing was changed uh, where they now take the the parent der as an input instead of the whole thing i think they don't really go into a lot of detail on it but basically i i think they made the parsing more fine-grained if that makes sense I might be mistaken, but that's how I read it. So basically just because of the way they refactored it, um, the bug wasn't wasn't really hittable anymore. But Apple did also put out a patch as well uh, that added some additional validation to ensure a key value sequence doesn't contain other elements. Um, and I'll also point out as, as a sidebar that the post talks a bit about the fact that SHA-1 is still allowed as a hash type for Apple's integrity checks on the code directory. And they call this out as somewhat interesting because SHA-1 is vulnerable to collision attacks, as we've seen before. specifically like an identical prefix type attack could be interesting where you could try to get like one set of entitlements to come out as at the same hash as another set um and try to do like a desync between amfid's view of the entitlements and the kernels they leave that to future research though but they say that they hope apple just removes sha1 support for the integrity checks entirely which um honestly i'm surprised that sha1 is even still supported at all um, because like with Apple, they don't really have to worry about legacy or breaking support or something since they control the ecosystem for the most part. So it's kind of interesting that such a weak hashing algorithm is still used uh, in, in this sort of context, but I'm sure we'll see that change uh, in, in some amount of time. But I thought I'd call it out because it is mentioned by the post. Like I said, they lead that to future research. They don't delve into that very much, but uh, it is a potential avenue for future research. So
2: yeah, it seemed like it supported it, but wasn't necessarily the main way it's being done. Yeah. Not sure about that though.
1: Yeah, that's how I read it too. Um maybe it was used in some older iOS versions and and it's being kept for that, but uh yeah, it, it's SHA-1 is a pretty weak uh hashing algorithm
2: for, I mean it's not it's not MD5. Um there are it's not quite problems bad, with SHA1, but it's yeah. still costly, I think. I mean Costly from an individual perspective um they talk here in twenty twenty uh the cost of an identical prefix collision uh was you know eleven thousand dollars versus versus a chosen prefix actually saying I wanted to match like this other thing forty five thousand dollars so like accessible on like some level, but most individuals aren't going to be able to drop that that said, I mean now where they're Making some money off it, ransomware, or whatever, I could imagine that potentially being reasonable. And, of course,
1: nation-state actors. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of,
2: I I felt like that was a bit implied, like, of course, nation-states could easily afford, you know, $50,000.
1: Yeah. You would hope so, (laughs) (laughs) anyway. Yeah. All right, so uh, we'll get into our last topic here, which is uh, evolving and Android 13's hardened parcel serialization changes, uh, which can result in Privesk to system app. So it's kind of funny in in this episode, we have two like mobile topics uh, that are bugs that are results of security improvements uh, overall. So yeah, this is another case of that. Uh, I'll let Z get into this one because this one was a little bit uh, complicated and I think Z has a better grasp on it than I do Um, because it's dealing with like uh, deserialization and some of the stuff in the uh, the Java abstractions for IPC.
2: Um, th- there's a bit of the deserialization, so they talk about that in the context of the older bug. So, as Spectre mentioned, this was a kind of security improvement that was introduced. These lazy values uh, were meant to end the self-changing bundles. Self-changing bundles. Um, I actually wasn't familiar with this attack, but seems kind of cool. The idea. of with bundles, you it's basically just a, you know, key value mapping. Um, some limitations on the actual values that can be stored. One of the types of values are parcel. Parcels kind of have this. I, it's not like an intentional feature, but it's it's a serialization method. Um, you go through, you like you have like the dot write string dot write int or whatever. And then uh, when recreating the object from the parcel, it will read int or read string or whatever. Um, that kind of makes sense, but it didn't have internal size, so you could say, or even typing information there, it was just a binary blob effectively being stored, and it would kind of just track where it is. Um, so you could have these unbalanced parcels, which would, uh, write, you know, maybe more data, and then when it reads back, it would only read like an int, and it would have an offset, so it could read different data back the second time it gets read, which mattered because these bundles are meant to be passed around to different across process boundaries you'd send that up to system server send it out to wherever else if you're trying to do something the gist of the attack was or with self-changing bundles is you'd send a bundle that uh some application would validate or some service sorry would validate and be like okay these values are okay to use um and in doing so it would unbundle the bundle look at those values and then rebundle it send it back to system server, saying like yep this is okay to go and then System Server would unbundle it that second time, getting all these new values, something insecure. Um, and in the case of the attacks, they were uh, just using intents that you know System Server could access, but that wouldn't have actually been approved by the application. Um, so that's those attacks. That's what lazy value is in part an attempt to stop those attacks by writing in the length information when it's writing a value. So with the value, it actually stores information about what the length of it is so it can know when you read a value if you read too little information or doesn't match the actual size of whatever was supposed to be written there it knows and then they added in the read lazy value which goes into it a little bit deeper so lazy values are effectively just a layer of abstraction on top of the or as i understand it at least i will admit i had to do a bunch of digging gear, so my understanding may be bit more limited here but lazy values and abstraction on top of that where you effectively just have another class which holds a reference to the data that's supposed to parse and then you can call like the get value on it to read the actual lazy value or to lazily read the value so reading it when you need it um and in one particular case uh so there's yet another functionality in here it's string deduplication so Sometimes the objects here are going to have repeated strings. So they have this fancy little helper that does string deduplication. Doesn't really matter how it works. What matters is when you have that enabled, and this parcel comes through, it's going to decide to just immediately deserialize it. It's not. Re- it's going to try and resolve all those lazy values and everything in there, and just immediately get all the real values. That way, that object doesn't need to stay in memory very long. It can used up and they'll make a clone of the parcel and that and that's where the problem comes in or part of the problem comes in um i guess one other bit of background that should be mentioned uh and actually where i think this vulnerability is kind of cool and probably more what the takeaways is is these parcels aren't in like the normal java memory system well they are technically but they're part of a pool so as parcels are allocated they end up in a pool, and then you just pull out of the pool rather than actually being completely freed back to like the or the Java garbage collector finding it and freeing it. Um, they stay inside of this pool, which creates the possibility for a sort of use after free. Um or well, they call it a use after recycle in this case. So jumping back, um when the parcel, if it has the string deduplication going on there. It's going to try and resolve all of those lazy values. And those lazy values are effectively just objects with references to where the data actually is uh, in the original parcel. Um, So to be clear, a copy is made. It then tries to resolve all the values in that copy. Um, All those lazy values still point to the original. And as it's iterating through, if any of those lazy values fail, um, and they talk about introducing a failure. How that might happen, uh, but if any of them fail, specifically at least how the system server runs, it won't raise an exception, it'll just ignore it and leave that lazy value in place. Uh, which means you can end up having an object that it thinks has no lazy values left that's completely unparceled and resolved all of the values in it. Uh, but instead, it actually does have a lazy value in there and it's still pointing to the original parcel later on. That original parcel, because it's made this copy, it no longer needs the original, and it will recycle it, effectively freeing, just putting it back in the pool for somebody else to use, creating your scenario where you get a use after free. When that gets used again, this parcel gets recycled, somebody else uses it, you can now get control over the value as it's being loaded you know, another time, or where it's getting used somewhere else later. Uh, so I thought that was a really cool attack, just the memory pool allocation kind of seeing this sort of use after free style attack inside of java you don't really see that i mean unless you're looking at attacking the java runtime you don't really see that um yeah like that suggests that they do go into exploiting it which i'm not going to go into uh, largely because that's just android specific stuff that unless you're actually dealing with android in which case it's probably not all that new to you Uh, But in terms of the attack, seeing that sort of use after recycle attack, um, it's just another place to keep in mind to look at when something tries to implement any sort of memory management. This is true when you're looking at CS2, but uh,
0: it's really hard to get that right every time. And in this case, um, I mean, I'm not even sure... With the lazy value holding that reference uh, back into the old object. You just have to be aware of that edge case and
2: like not let it happen. Either let the exception be raised and uh, not try... Well, there are other problems with actually doing it that way too. Um, I assume they have some patch information here. I didn't actually dig into it and I probably should have. Look at how they did try and patch this is- issue. Um, um, I did
1: take a look at the patch at one point. I think it's uh, basically they'd always called uh, recycle with true at one point, And I think they made it um, so that it. In-
2: <sighs> no, I Damn, think you're I thinking of um, early on. It talks patch. about basically recalling or not uh, running the uh, initialized from parcel lock. And it would run recycle parcel equals false. Um, I think that's what you're thinking of when it comes to the true-false value?
1: So, so here's what I was thinking of. Um, I just brought up the patch for those who can see it. So, yeah, they added this comment, recycle parcel being false, implies that we do not own the parcel. In this case, do not use lazy values to be safe as the parcel can be recycled outside of our control. So you can see before, they just always set lazy to true. Um, and now they, they check, like, recycle parcels. so...
2: Yeah, okay, different area, too. was Yeah. A different area of code.
1: Um, so i couldn't remember the exact specifics but now the code is up yeah it's basically um they were they were treating values lazy even when they didn't own the parcel uh at, at sometimes and that's why that, that's what the patch aims to address um yeah, fair
2: enough um better than some of the things i was thinking of oh but yeah i mean in terms of a bug in terms of takeaways it's those custom memory pools that get implemented you can have these sorts of issues. So taking a look for odd flows, unexpected flows. In this case, it is kind of a special edge case that goes through and makes that copy and kind of does this extra bit of work specifically on having um uh, on having that
0: uh string deduplication enabled. Like I I mean, edge cases are always a place for bugs, but yeah, I mean I've never
2: I'm sure this has been seen elsewhere. Um like, it's it's not a new attack. It's not something I've actually found, um, you know, doing my consulting. I don't think I've ever called out any sort of issue like this. Um, in part, because I wasn't necessarily even thinking about it. Thinking after, you know, the memory pool and that, like, keeping a reference there. It is a bit deep. It would be hard to detect in a lot of cases, especially if you're a black box. Um. But really interesting to see nonetheless, and at least from a bit of an eye-opener here on just looking for that sort of issue. Again, I mean, maybe you already knew Bone, already looking for it in Java apps, in which case fair to you, but novel to me. Uh this post honestly doesn't do a great job of explaining it. There's a ton of background here. It's just really dense. Um, you could see if you're watching, you could see just all these links out to other resources that you might want to read to understand a little bit better like there's a lot of links through this it's very dense it very much just assumes you understand uh exactly like what's going on which in fairness you know if you're writing it to that audience nothing wrong with that but be not understanding like even some of the fundamentals of this made it a little bit hard to actually read Oh, um, There were a couple things that did help me, and I'll just include their links here. One was this first link is about just bundle issues and like the self-modifying bundle or self-changing bundle. It's twenty seventeen bug that kind of helped me understand what was going on with that. And then there was a Black Hat Europe twenty twenty two talk, which is where they end up talking about like the or where they end up talking about this new lazy value, and they end up going through some of the issues that existed with parcels before and the mismatch parcels um and kind of how some of those attacks work so it seems interesting i'm actually looking forward to seeing the talk about this but that has not been released yet we just have the slides right now but the slides do a reasonable job here of actually talking about some of the issues so i'll include a link to that in the show notes also
0: yeah.
1: I could see a lot of potential pitfalls with doing uh that like manual memory management on top of Java's, you know, automated garbage collected memory. Um which makes me wonder like why do it? Uh, it it has to be like some kind of performance thing? Yeah. But I, I don't know, it seems like the risk would almost outweigh like the performance benefits, but you know, um I'm not going to have the hubris to think I know more than Google, but it it is like a a very risky thing to do uh, to open up these this class of issues.
2: I will say this. So I don't know for sure about parcelable or um, about these classes, but it does feel like in a lot of cases these had concrete values. They wouldn't have had references out to any other objects and without any references. You don't have as much... I mean, you could have like a double free sort of situation, I guess, um, and then have two users of it.
0: Uh, But at least the risk from this issue is really in having that reference in there that then hangs out too long. Yeah. Uh, So without that, like a pool isn't necessarily a bad
2: idea. You don't have to go through the whole allocation process every single time, especially with some of these that are... You're passing these across processes, so they're supposed to be rather short-lived. Um, you see that actually, that's one of the places where I've seen just custom memory allocators also being implemented, is where you have just this one type of object just needs to be passed really quickly, uh, passed along there, um, and it's always like the same. I guess, yeah, that is one of the things I'll see on, C, on the C side of things is it's always the same sort of object a map doesn't feel like it really fits at, it's usually like the same size this would not always be the same size of objects so a little different there but yeah
0: it's gotta be for the performance reasons I suppose I mean especially system servers probably yeah I I guess I can't really go too far into exactly the their reasoning
2: performance obviously um, and one of the cases I see is just where you have the same object over and over and want to improve performance in that one hot path.
1: I would be curious about like, uh, how much it does impact performance. Uh, Obviously, it's not talked about in this post, it's not really relevant for the bug or anything. But um, just like on a personal level, I I would be curious uh, on the justifications of of doing that. But yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting, you don't generally see these kinds of, you know, uh, reallocation type issues at this level. Uh in java but when you do yeah. see it it's really cool so
2: yeah that's why i really wanted to cover this post was just the sort of use after free sort of
0: situation in java as something to at least be aware of to hunt for yeah all right so uh with that topic out of the
1: way that's everything that we have for the episode today so unless you have any last minute thoughts see we'll go ahead and wrap it up
2: uh yeah no shout outs this week Alright, so thank Actually, you everyone I will um, oh, okay. in. Sorry, <laughs> uh, I wasn't planning to give the shout-out,
0: uh, but
2: I figure I did on Twitter I think already. Might as well uh, do it here, and that is, at least for those of you listening to our podcast, you may also be interested
0: in the Critical Thinking a Bug Bounty podcast. Oh. oh. Sorry, let me just copy the link here. I was unprepared for this. Um, have one episode out they have a few
2: more like they talk a bit more on the practical takeaways side of testing for issues um they've only had one episode so far i enjoyed it like i can definitely recommend it uh at least as a shout out worth taking a look at if you're looking for other kind of more technical content um they don't dive into the code as much as we do but i don't think audio is a great format for that so they're probably making the right decision there um other than that i mean more discussional i enjoyed listening to them um i'm looking forward to seeing a few more episodes out of them
1: yeah uh, i don't think they're super regular <clears throat> like i don't think they have a schedule but they do mention they have a few more episodes in the pipeline so uh those will be dropping soon presumably um and yeah like one of the reasons we started this podcast is because we we thought there was a lack of uh you know, audio, video content covering this kind of thing. And I think that's still kind of true. So it's nice to see more uh, podcasts coming into the space around uh, vulnerabilities and whatnot.
2: Yeah, so, especially on the yeah. technical side. There's a ton of, like, security, you know, what's going like on NetSec. right now in security. But, um, yeah. yeah, I guess more NetSec. But it's nice to see more technical content actually doing the testing and doing all of that. Nice to see.
0: Yeah.
1: Alright, so uh, yeah, thank you everyone who tuned in as always. Uh, VOD will be up on Twitch immediately or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. Uh, And you can also find previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Feel free to join the Discord and follow us on Twitter. Once again, the Spot the Bone challenge is there for anyone who wants to take a crack at it. Uh, Links for Discord and Twitter are down below or in the chat. And we'll be back tomorrow for the Binary episode. That's at
0: 7pm Eastern, 4pm Pacific. And we'll see you then.